This is The Lydia Project, conversations with Christian women. Our name is inspired by the life-changing conversation that Lydia had with Paul, recorded in Acts 16. On this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of women whose lives have also been impacted by the truth of the gospel. Your hosts, Tori Walker and Taryn Hayes, hope that you too will be challenged and inspired by how the gospel truths are being worked out in the lives of their guests, ordinary women who serve an extraordinary God. Today, your host is Taryn Hayes. Hello and welcome again to the Lydia Project Conversations with Christian Women. I'm Taryn and today I'm delighted to be telling you a little bit about our next guest, Kim Gibson is someone who has known pain and suffering intimately. In fact, even though she feels quite well now, she's still walking the road of cancer and has been for a few years. I think that one of the most striking parts of her testimony of walking this road is not that she has felt that she has suffered well, but rather that even while she has been in deepest despair, that God is still God and that is something to rejoice in. Kim also serves on the Grow Women's Conference Committee and can be found giving book reviews over at the 2020 Grow Chats podcast. You can find those chats at qcca.org.au forward slash grow. The Grow Chats are wonderfully edifying, so may I encourage you to add them to your podcast listening app. In the meantime, join me as I chat now with Kim Gibson. Kim, it really is great to have you here on the Lydia Project. It's lovely to be here. I don't know if you remember, but the first time I actually met you was in a car park in Albany Creek. I remember. remember that. I, I delivered a book. I delivered a That's book right. to you, didn't I? Yeah. I was so impressed that you would come all the way to deliver a book to me. That was actually yeah. born out of a stuff up because we, uh, we'd been at a conference where we'd recommended that book and then I'd nicked off to a wedding in the afternoon and left some people, other people in charge who didn't know the setup of bookstores much and we'd um, failed to realise there was a box of those books sitting under the counter and there were lots of people like you who'd, who said, oh, can I buy that book? And we said, sorry, we ran out. And then I came back and found there was like a box full of them. So, I was like, anyone wants it, I would deliver it anywhere around Brisbane. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I was super impressed. It was nice to meet you. But, yeah, it really was good. Um, yeah, I was also super impressed with your view on books and just the way you shared uh, the book reviews. Um, but we can chat about that later. Mm. But first, I would love to know, how did you come to faith in Christ? I came to trust in Jesus because of my lovely mum. So um, I grew up with Christian parents, but my mum was probably the more active and sturdy kind of Christian, I think, in our house. I grew up on a farm in country New South Wales, so a bit isolated, but I'm the eldest of four kids. And my mum, she's a very ordinary person in some ways. She wouldn't think she's extraordinary, but she was extraordinary in the sense that she just had this real clarity. She never put any pressure on us about grades or what kind of job we were going to do like the only thing she really cared about she cared when we were like respectful kids and you know reliable kids and stuff like that but she she just wanted her kids to know Jesus so that's the way she kind of parented us and particularly me because I was the youngest so I had like I was the eldest so she had the most energy for me so I was discipled quite deliberately by my mum when I was a very very little child so I, I remember kind of being at uni and saying to my mum like when did I actually to become a Christian and mum said when I was two and I was kind of skeptical and I said to her did I understand what I was praying and she said you knew enough for a two-year-old and I think it was just you know the evidence of God's grace at work in my life that at every stage that I'm being confirmed so I kind of like 
faffed my way through primary school, didn't really know what being a Christian was about. It was just getting to that really awkward stage in grade six, grade seven, where you're really starting to moderate your behaviour to fit in with the people around you. And um, mercifully, I started to go to youth group at our church and we were in a very small little country church that didn't always have a youth group. And we kind of had a youth group for a couple of years when someone new moved to town who had some energy to run it for a couple of years and then they'd go away and youth group would lapse for a couple of years. So I came in at year seven when there was um, this couple who were about my parents' age who started to read the, lead the youth group. And the guy in particular was just very zealous and very fervent. And the thing that I really, really struck me as I was kind of taught by him and uh, in the youth group was I thought, wow, God is real and he sees everything I do and I'm going to have to answer to him. And so that real struggle of fearing God versus fearing people, actually, I, I did that struggle in year seven. Um, and I'm immeasurably thankful to God that I kind of um, had to do that then. It's not the only time I've had to struggle with that, but it just meant at year seven, I went, okay, I'm going to fear God more than people. And that, I think, meant for some pretty lonely times in high school um, and some times of awkwardness where I felt like I stuck my neck out to be willing to stand out to be a Christian. But in general, I think it made high school a rel relatively easy and, and more safe for me, which was lovely. I was certainly fearful of God and wanted to honour and please him. Um, but I was very moralistic and could be... Uh, judgmental and arrogant towards people around me and it left me with this terrible dilemma that when I felt like I was doing well Christianly I'd feel quite proud and confident and that when I had a moment where I, I did something that I knew was wrong or I had an attitude of my heart exposed I would just have this absolute crisis of faith and so I had this repeated experience all through my late primary school or from as early as I can remember really through into uni where it could happen a couple of times a year and I would be feeling really guilty about something maybe real or imagined and I would think if I died right now, would God welcome me into heaven? Or would he have to say, I'm sorry because of your sin, I have to send you away. And I, I, I knew that Jesus had died for my sins, but I thought I had to meet him halfway. And every time I kept on examining how well I was going on my end, there was always reasons to be really worried. And um, I, it would always end the same way with me crying, praying, asking God to forgive me and promising to try harder. So I think so when I was a Christian, I wanted to honour God, but I had just no assurance of faith and probably the church that I was in. Maybe people probably weren't aware that that was a problem and, and maybe it wasn't talked about very often. The big next gracious change came when I went to uni. So I went to uni in a little country town in Wagga and there was a Christian group on campus and I had a friend who took me along to the Christian group and turned up, they, it was one of the Christian groups that actually had a university church campus that would meet on Sunday nights. And I turned up to the first uni church and the staff worker opened up the book of Ephesians and he said, we're going to work our way through the book of Ephesians. We're going to start at the start and we're going to work our way through the end and we're just going to work through it verse by verse and see what it means. And I was like, you're kidding me. I've never seen this done before. Like that, that makes so much sense, but I'd never seen anyone teach through the Bible like that. And then it was like, I'd been starving for my whole life and someone finally fed me and I was just turning up. I'm not even sure if Richard's listening, I'm sorry to say this, Richard was my staff worker. Um, I'm not even sure if Richard was the most amazing dynamic teacher, but he just like was stepping me through the Bible and it was just amazing just to actually understand the Bible for myself. And yes, yeah, so there were lots of mind-blowing moments, actually understanding the gospel. I did a course that helped me actually know what it meant to be a Christian and be able to explain it to others. And so I can remember in my second year of uni, I'd also 
decided my second year of uni I was going to read through the Book of Romans on my own. And so that was my quiet time. And I take it quite small, like little chunks, like maybe a verse or two a day. Really think, do I understand this? What does it mean? So it's probably about halfway through my second year of uni. I was having this very familiar anxiety reaction, lying in bed at night one night, worrying about something I'd done. If I died right now, what would happen? Would I be welcomed into heaven or sent away because of my sin? And all of a sudden the penny dropped. And I went, oh doesn't depend on me <laughs> if I keep on looking at myself I'll never be confident there'll always be stuff there that undermines confidence but if I look at Jesus I can always be confident because he was completely you know sufficient where I'm insufficient he's completely perfect where I'm imperfect and I just like I was so relieved I just kind of like heaved a sigh of relief and rolled over and fell asleep <laughs> 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 so I didn't have to stay awake like stressing about it and kind of bargaining with God and trying to like you know, pull my socks up to do better. I just, that was the when Penny dropped about grace. So university ministry was a huge influence, but it was really set in train by my lovely mum and, you know, and just little faithful people that God put along the way to just give me that like little spiritual booster shot in the arm at times when I needed it. Yeah. Yeah. Just listening to you. There's so many moments where I'm going, yes, yes, yes. And me too. <laughs> and yes. Oh, I just, I love that your experience of having the Bible taught. Oh, that's exactly what was my experience as well, where for me, it was hearing Peter Jensen actually take us through the book Mm. of Romans and Mm. having that done obviously so well, because it was Mm. Peter Jensen, but going, oh my goodness, you can, you can study the Bible like this and it makes so much sense. It always excites me when I hear other people have really had pennies drop because of of the Bible being taught. like it's just no understatement to say it changed my life completely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. and I love I love that you turned over rolled over and went to sleep <laughs> yeah because <laughs> that's what grace lets you do like it, it does yeah, it, it lets you roll over and go to sleep <laughs> it's, it's it's his rest it really is and you yeah. had a literal example right there yeah. <laughs> you could just rest in him yeah. and yay to faithful mums who just yeah. Love their children and teach them about Jesus. Yeah. I had my mum's mum as well was very like so she would um like so my mana we called her and she would send us little like I used to do postal Sunday school, which I totally was into. I was the child that would do anything for a gold star. And so like to, you know, do your little workbook for postal Sunday school. And she would I suspect there wasn't much money around. I suspect that they paid for us to go to the occasional Christian kids camp and, and things like that. I'm pretty sure that that's the sort of thing that Mana would have been in the background yeah doing as well but she died when I was 14 so I didn't get to know her as an adult believer yeah oh thank goodness for heaven here yeah yeah Yeah. that's awesome so clearly you're involved in ministry tell us about that Mm. what ministry are you involved in yeah, so I, when I was at uni, I studied pharmacy and I worked as a pharmacist for a number of years. And then I went and did a ministry apprenticeship with the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students. And so I worked for a couple of years at Wollongong University and then I went to Bible College in Sydney. Then I worked at the University of New South Wales for a couple of years and then my husband got a job in Brisbane. So I moved to Brisbane. So for the past five years or so, I've kind of on and off, I've been working with evangelical students at the University of Queensland. So I think university ministry is not the only ministry, it's not the only important ministry. Um, university students aren't the only people who need to be looked after, but it was so pivotal in my life. And I kind of know the organisation and I know how it works and I remember what it's like to be a student. So it's been such a lovely privilege to be on the staff worker side of things when I benefited so much from being on the student side of things. Yeah. So another more serious question. A couple of years ago, you had a serious and life-changing shock. Can you tell us what happened? 
Yeah, so I always get the date of this wrong, which is just embarrassing when it's your own life. But um, so it was the start of 2016. Uh, I'd gone to the, the doctor for just some symptoms that I hadn't really thought much about. They were a bit embarrassing, but I hadn't really worried too much about them. But I found that I, we had an ultrasound and I found out that I had a pelvic mass and they couldn't determine what it was. There were some tests that made it look like it wasn't cancer and there were some tests that made it look like it was cancer. And they said, look, we're just not going to know we're going to have to operate. So you're going to have to go in for surgery. So I was uh, 35 at the time, married, didn't have kids. And I went in for surgery and I remember coming out of anesthesia and asking the doctor how long the operation had been. Cause I knew if it was the shorter version, then it was probably good news. They could have just removed the mass and it probably hadn't spread anywhere. And I knew if it was the longer version, it meant that they'd had to remove um, whatever it was that had spread to other places. And the anaesthetist told me it was the longer operation. So I was in recovery thinking, okay, okay, it's cancer. Apparently I'd spoken to my surgeon, but I really don't remember that because you don't mm. remember anything after you come out of general anesthetic. So then I went, was taken back to the room that I was going to be staying in for recovery um, at the hospital and saw Richard. And by that stage, I think we knew it was cancer. So, you know, that was a pretty teary reunion. And then my surgeon came in and explained to me again, while I was more mentally competent, mm. what it meant. Um, so I, had, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and they initially thought it was just in one ovary, but as she felt around the pelvic cavity, she realised that two lymph nodes were affected. So it had already got into my lymph nodes. So she removed those two lymph nodes, um, but that meant it was a stage three cancer. So it had got out of the and it hadn't metastasized in other parts of the body but had gone into the lymph system and the other thing she said uh, that they now that they had some analysis of the tumor was it was a grade three cancer so it meant it was aggressive yeah so i was 35 and had like because of the cancer i it was just i automatically had a, i had my ovaries removed i had a hysterectomy and some other bits and pieces taken out yeah i was 35 i was in medical menopause i was never going to be able to have children and I was facing a cancer prognosis where only 40% of women with my diagnosis oh, and my wow. type of cancer are alive in five years' time. Wow. And um, I and just, as you can understand the situation, just the grief and the fear mm. hit me like a truck. And um, looking back now, I can kind of see, yeah, of course I was having a trauma reaction when my body was releasing a ton of cortisol into the system, a ton of adrenaline into the system. That's what the body does when it thinks it's in danger. So I had a very, very strong anxiety reaction. And the, one of the things that was really difficult was my first thought when I heard the diagnosis was I thought, I'm going to die. I'm going to meet God and I'm not ready. Like I haven't, I haven't been good enough, which is so funny. Like it's such a, you know, like I, one of the key parts of my story is that penny dropping at uni about realizing it depend on me, but actually in the trauma of that moment and the fear hitting me, I'm probably not thinking very clearly. I thought I'm going to meet God. I'm scared. And then I felt so ashamed and guilty because I thought, Oh my goodness, I'm a gospel worker. I teach the gospel to people at uni all the time. I tell them about how it doesn't depend on you. It depends on Jesus. I tell them, you know, this means that we don't have to be fearful of death and everything like that. And actually when I'm in the situation, I am just going to pieces. And um, uh, it just, I, yeah, just made me want to hide away from people. I loved the students I was working with, but I was, I thought, 
I don't want them to come and see me because what if they see me going to pieces and what if that, you know, detrimentally affects their faith and everything. So it was very, very difficult and very, very upsetting. And I think just the trauma of that stress was just sent me into like an anxiety fog that it took a long time to kind of crawl out of. Yeah. Where did you go to from there? So then I went straight to chemotherapy. So like, so I had like six weeks to recover from the surgery and then I went straight to chemotherapy. Actually, I was probably more scared of chemotherapy than I was of cancer. So my, my mother who died when I was 14, she died of bowel cancer and we uh-huh. didn't live in the same, we didn't live in the same, she lived in Sydney and we lived in country New South Wales. So I didn't see her go through it, but I just kind of picked up vibes. And so cancer and chemotherapy were the hardest things I could ever have thought of doing. I am rubbish when I get sick, like nausea, headache. Oh, I am just like a basket case. And so I was, I was just like, I can't do this. This is not what I'm able to do. Oh, and it's, it's um, my chemotherapy in general was, I think they made great improvements in anti-nausea medication and um, um, medication to help with side effects. And I was actually on the couple of medications that were on one of them in particular was quite mild and you lose your hair, but it's not as bad. So there's really dire stories that I had in my head weren't the case for me. I don't think I ever threw up on chemotherapy, but it knocked you around and it was hard and it was grueling. So you, you start off with 18 weeks where they're just trying to mop up anything that's around in the system. Cause I think they've got most of it from surgery. They're just trying to mop it up. And then, yeah. then I had a year where I was basically no evidence of disease, but maybe after about nine months, my blood tests started to show the cancer markers were going up. And so then I ended up back on chemotherapy for about 18 months. I did three different rounds of continuous chemotherapy so for almost a year and a half and I was on chemotherapy and um, I got to the end of whatever year that was. And uh, it must be 2018. And my doctor said, do we need to give you a mental health break? And I was like, yes, please. <laughs> Just was so, so done with it. Yeah. And then like a couple, a couple of ups and downs, but then mercifully I got onto an immunotherapy trial. So immunotherapy is one of like the new fields that there's lots of interest in for treatment. So I got into an immunotherapy trial last year. So I can't remember what it was, maybe June last year. And it worked uh, really well for the first couple of months. And then we found out kind of in December, but I had, I had some side effects with delayed treatment. And then we found out in December it stopped working, which is mm. kind of the risk that you have with cancer, especially once you get to my stage where you've been through a number of treatments, you start to get resistant to treatment. And these are quite experimental treatments. So in December last year, we found out the cancer had started to grow again, just small amounts, but yeah, in a few more lymph nodes around the body. It, like it's in about eight lymph nodes around my body at the moment, I think. And the lymph nodes have got a bit bigger. And I was just yeah, looking down the barrel of having to go back to chemotherapy and I was not, not feeling okay about that. Even though I'd done it before, like there are things that are easier about going back, but you still, yeah. you don't ever want to go back to a yucky place that you've had to do before. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and then in God's merciful kindness, I qualified for a, a, a new immunotherapy trial. And so I've been on that since about January this year. And that's been going quite well. So I feel quite normal. I've got lots of energy. I feel like 13 days of the week, I pretend I don't have cancer. And one day, it was 13 days of a fortnight, I pretend I don't have cancer. And one day a fortnight, I have to go back into the clinic. And I'm like, oh, that's right. I've got a serious illness. Yeah, okay. <laughs> How are you coping living in this like suspension of time almost, you know, knowing you have it, not knowing if three years down the line, if that actually is the death sentence or if yeah. that's, there, there are other things in the future for you. 
I think almost anyone who's had cancer lives in it a little bit, unless you've got a very curable cancer that has a very high success rate in successful treatment. I think anyone with cancer lives always with a, a what if kind of what if and when. In my case, it's probably a bit heightened. Well, I think one thing I have learnt to do is that I just have to do this stage. So at the start, one of the things that actually just completely overwhelmed me was I was responding to the diagnosis and I was recovering from surgery and I was worrying about how I was going to do chemotherapy and I was worrying about what was I going to do when the cancer was, when I was no evidence of disease, but I was waiting to see if it would come back. And what would I do if the cancer came back? Like I was trying to like emotionally deal with five ste- steps ahead of where I was. Like I think it took me until I was in like to step three or something like that, that I sort of like went, oh, actually the only thing I need to do is the stage that I'm in. And yet when I have to change stages, that's going to be painful and difficult and I'll have to relearn stuff. But I can do this stage that I'm in. Partly, yeah, I think of what's worthwhile doing now. And that does help me get on and do stuff. I'm just really thankful that I can be back at work. I didn't work for the first year and I couldn't have worked for the first year. But then after a year, it's actually really good for me to be back at work. And I really love that. And so I'm kind of going, yeah. I want to be. I want to be at my post until yeah. I can't can't do it anymore. Yeah, it is hard. Sometimes it really weighs on me. It kind of like rolls in like the tide and weighs on me. And then a lot of the time, I think I just get on with life and don't think about yeah. it too much, which is probably just a learnt mechanism over time because you can't sit in the what if all the time. Even though sometimes you just can't get out of it either. So yeah, yeah. How does it impact how you talk to people and? And do your job. I don't know if I always do this very well, but it means I have to think in my job, I'm expendable. So my temptation is always, because I quite like people, like my temptation is always to bond people to me. <laughs> and I have to keep on thinking, you know what, they, they don't need me long-term and they're not likely to get me long-term. They have to be actually bonded to Jesus. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, and he uses me in my relationships with people in that. In my work, it does mean that I think about, all right, well, who's going to replace me? I've got a lovely colleague, Steph, who I work with, so there is another female staff worker at the uni. But, you know, as I'm talking to students and I'm talking to students who maybe should be considering whether they should do Christian ministry, partly what I'm thinking is, you know, because I'm not going to be around forever. I need people to replace me. Um, And it's just been enormously helpful in talking about suffering with people. So I think at uni we, we... kind of like, like you know, looking just at the, the surface level of things, the things that cause people to give up on their faith once they leave uni. So people have been really involved in the Christian group. We think there are issues to do with suffering and issues to do with sexuality. And like there's, and there's often crossover between those two sections, but they seem to be the two big areas where people, it's really hard for them to persevere in Jesus or they give up on Jesus. So I'm a kind of gift in some way because <laughs> uh, I just, I'm just around and I'm a constant reminder that the future isn't guaranteed and suffering in the world is real and that, and yeah, that you have to grapple with that. And they probably get sick of it. I'm like, oh, well, from the cancer, I blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Thinking, oh, gosh, don't mention the cancer anymore. I can't take it. <laughs> oh, so earlier you were saying how, you know, when you first had the diagnosis and you were really in that, I guess, pit of despair for quite a while, mm. Yeah. What do you, what would you say helped you come out of that? Yeah, I feel like I'm out of it and have been out of it for a, quite a bit of time. When you say a bit of time, I've kind of been putting eighteen months and eighteen months together in my brain oh, and I'm trying to sure. figure out how long. I reckon. 
I reckon the first three to four months were just awful after yeah. diagnosis and surgery. And it probably took me to the end of that year. So it was February 29th, uh, February 29th that I had surgery. I was probably to the end, getting towards maybe November that year before I kind of felt robust enough and was, you know, going, okay, I'm going to go back to work next year and stuff like that. So first three to four months, really rough. And then, yeah, a gradual recovery kind of towards the end of the year. So yeah, I think I've been mostly out of that. It's always harder on chemo because chemo just so saps your physical reserves that it saps your mental and emotional reserves as well and you just feel yeah. yucky all the time and so yeah so you'd always have some dips and wobbles uh on chemo yeah so i think being out of that you know that terribly intense um anxiety and despair for a while but i feel vulnerable so even a couple of weeks ago i just had this routine blood test before treatment and it's just to check that your blood's okay and it came back with something that they said, look, my doctor said, look, it might just be a funny aberration or it could mean that actually there's a problem with your kidneys. Um, we're going to do another test at the end of treatment and I'll give you a call tomorrow morning. If, if it's still, you know, an aberration on the test, I'm going to send you for a kidney ultrasound. If it's gone back to normal, we just don't need to worry about anything. I was like, yeah, okay. I thought I reacted completely fine in the doctor's surgery. Came home, told Richard about it. Wasn't really conscious and feeling anxious. And I woke up the next morning. I was just like this grey fog had descended. And I thought, oh, I'm probably a little bit anxious about the test, but I wonder what. I wonder if something else is going on. At 8:30, my doctor rang me and said, "Yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it." And the fog disappeared just in an instant. Oh, yeah. And so, I, I just that was just a moment where I realised, oh, I'm just still really feel the fragility and the vulnerability that at any time things could change just from one test. Yeah. And yeah, so and you kind of have to reprocess things again. And even though I'm, I'm mercifully not in the same situation as when I started, I don't think it'd be true to say, but I'm completely reconciled to what's going on. Like, I, I think that's an ongoing process of <laughs> work. Yeah. I really appreciate that you share that. Uh, you know, you were saying earlier about how, you know, I'm your uni worker and you've been telling all your uni students about assurance and, and now, Yep. Look where you're at, but that's a reality. I mean, have people said to you that you sharing your reality in the, and and so vulnerably, and being so honest about your own doubts and fears? Have you had anybody say to you that that's particularly impacted them? Yeah, I think lots of people don't come up and say anything to you, but some people do come up and ask questions. So I think the fact that I've often had questions from people who I think can relate to the fragility, like they just don't feel like they're this super saint going through things and so I think the fact that I say things like because this is this is just absolutely true I just thought I would encounter suffering with a kind of glow of nobility (laughs) (laughs) and the truth is so far from that picture and I like I said in one talk I was like you know I was popping out of van just to get through the day and my courageous feat for the day was getting up and having a shower (laughs) And even, and even just part of the thing that I struggled with in those early stages was how how I sounded so whingy to myself. I sounded so needy. I sounded so fractious. And and I, I said that in a talk one time and I heard a lady, she didn't say it to me, but she's, I heard her say to a friend, I'm so glad she said that because that's what I'd be like. And I thought, okay, I'm glad that, yeah. yeah. I think it's just different Christians respond differently to suffering I had a friend who died of cancer a number of years ago and I wasn't deeply into her, like her family life and stuff like that. I know that she and her husband were desperately, desperately sad about the cancer, but most of the messages and images that I got from her were, 
like really positive and robust and and faithful and and um, I just had a very different experience and I think actually talking about a range of experiences help people to kind of go oh Christians can have a range of responses and Christians can have a range of responses and even even faith and trusting in God can look sometimes it does look like some emotional serenity and sometimes it looks like a teary snotty mess where you are just hanging on by your fingernails and in fact you're realizing that it is God who's hanging on to you because you've just lost all strength altogether. So I think actually yeah. sharing a range of stories just helps people when they actually encounter it. If they don't fit the mould, the picture they had in their head, they go, no, no, but this can still be, a, there's still faithfulness in the midst of different yeah, experiences of, it, of suffering. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the common denominator being that it's God who holds us yeah, and yeah. not the other way around. How did Richard cope through all of this? Oh, he was amazing. I mean, he was terribly sad. Uh, Richard's quite a bit older than me. And so we always expected that our life, what our life would look like getting married was that I would look after him when he was older. So it was a terrible shock to us to realise that probably the reality is going to be he's going to look after me. So he was terribly sad, but was such a great help and support to me. So he just, there'd be days that I would just say, like, days on end where I would just say I can't pray I can't pray and he'd say that's okay let me pray I'll pray he so many times spoke truth to me and like really compassionately so no, not the truth that grates on your nerves but the, the truth that actually you know was, yeah really helped I remember one time really early on I there was a, I had some complications with surgery so I ended up back up in a hospital multiple times it got pretty stressful we were reading through two Corinthians together which I love and um was actually really helpful but we were reading just the first chapter of two corinthians where god said you know praise be to the god of all comfort who comforts us in all our distress so that we'll be able to comfort others and i kind of whisper yelled because you don't want to yell too loudly when you're in a hospital room and people can hear in the corridor but i lost it and said where's the comfort like is like i know that god doesn't lie but where's the comfort like i am not feeling it how is this true and richard said to comfort stands outside you in your circumstances it's not necessarily a comfort you can feel but it's a comfort that at a real point in history on a real hill the son of god gave up his life for you so that you could be safe and you might not be able to feel it right now but it's it actually has to be a comfort that sits outside you and your feelings for it to be a real comfort and it didn't help straight away but yeah, over time, it's that like that truth just really slowly kind of helped me get through each day and stuff. So yeah, Richard was um, Richard was amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never heard it described like that before at all. Yeah, the temptation is to feel the comfort so inextricably linked to our own emotions, but to know that yeah. comfort can be something that is you know, objective. Yeah, and Richard's no, like, he is a big fan of emotions. Like, he's, his PhD is on emotions in the Christian life. So he's not someone who's kind of going, oh, you don't need to worry about emotions at all. But it was, like, it was really, but he also loves two Corinthians. He spent a lot of time with two Corinthians. And it was actually a really helpful moment where, yep, he said, no, the comfort is there, even if you can't feel it. And what you're working towards is in God's mercy, mm. your emotions are lining up with the truth that's already objective. Yeah. 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 But it's okay if you can't feel that today. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay if you can't feel that today. Wow. <laughs> yeah, as I mentioned earlier, the first time I met you, you were standing on stage giving this incredible book review at the Grow Conference. Could you tell us a little bit about what Grow is and your role there? 
So GROW is a women's conference that runs in Brisbane each year. And its aim is to be um, thoughtfully and interestingly and faithfully having women teach the Bible to women. So it's been going about 10 years. I think this is our 10 year anniversary, but ironically, because of COVID, we can't run a conference this year. So we're kind of like yeah. missing, our, missing our anniversary kind of things. Mostly my role is basically the bookstore and the book reviews. So I kind of fell into that role almost accidentally a couple of years ago, but it's actually been enormous fun. A bit of work as well, but um, yes. But this year, grow because they're not going to be able to meet in person as a big conference. What they're doing is release. We're doing is releasing a series of little podcasts with a variety of different audio content. So there'll be a Bible chat. There'll be some prayer stuff. I think there'll be some some kind of like you know uh, Christian songs, maybe the story behind the songs. And I'm going to do two book chats with my friend Danielle. So we'll still do some book reviews, but they'll be a little bit different to what they would normally yeah. be at a great conference. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to them. <laughs> I've, I've really enjoyed your book reviews. And I've, I've told you this before, but just for the sake of our listeners, what I've really appreciated about the book reviews that you've done is that you not only are so clear about what the book is about and very relatable on how you explain it, but I think it was the first conference I went to. I was really struck about how balanced you were in recognizing sensitivity towards how people read a book. Mm. And I, I can't remember what the book was, but you pointed out that for some people, it is going to hit the nail on the head for them. They need to hear mm. what is in the book. But for other people, because of their vulnerabilities or insecurities, it actually might be more of a stumbling block to them. And you had that as your disclaimer or cautionary tale. That actually really impacted me because I'd come from a background where there was a lot of criticism for books being prescriptive books being unhelpful and it always frustrated me that a book that I had found really really yeah. helpful yeah. had been so frustrating for somebody else because they were seeing it through their lens of insecurity or fear mm. and I just I got in this place where I was stuck like do I recommend this book or do I not because it could be a, you know I was really in a silly yeah. place really yeah yeah and I found what you said to be, it really is a no-brainer. And it was a duh moment, but it also was an aha moment for me when I went, of course. <laughs> I thought pretty hard about that book review because what had happened was we wanted to have a book on sin and I'd already vetoed another one that had been popular because I had some concerns about it. And we were kind of like getting to the bottom of the barrel and, and two other women on the committee who are very thoughtful, godly women said, why don't we, you know, let's do this one. And I was like, yeah, great, okay. And so that's like, <laughs> And I, I didn't get a chance to read it until a couple of days before Grow. And as I was reading it, I think I'm particularly sensitive. Having had like anxiety and depression myself in the past, I'm a bit like sensitive to, how's this going to sound to people who might have various mental health illness or, or struggles at yeah. the time? And as I was reading it, there was some really great stuff in the book. But as I was reading it, I was just thinking, this author just hasn't thought hard enough about the interaction between mental health and what's sickness and what's sin. And then she would, there were actually some illustrations that she used where she was trying to illustrate sin, but she was using examples that I was just thought, this is just clearly mental health stuff. And so I like, so I was thinking, oh my gosh, I've got these lovely Christian friends who recommended this as the book. I've asked our provider to order in multiple copies of it and he's got it deliberately. And what do I do? Because I can't in good conscience get up and recommend this book to everyone in the room. And I said to Richard, what am I going to do? And he said, <laughs> that you have to tell the truth. Yeah. And so I went, okay, so this is what's really great about the book. This, uh, yeah, and I said, yep, if, you've got, if you're in these six circumstances, just 
just let it go. You don't need to read this one this year. It's totally fine. But if you actually got a really robust sense of grace and security in the gospel and you want to think a little bit harder about actually what might be the hidden kind of like idols in your life, I think you'll really yeah. enjoy this and, and really find it helpful. Yeah. And I thought I'd absolutely tanked the book and we would sell no copies. And that was the one that we, like, you know, we ran out of copies and um, yeah, that, was the yeah. that was the box that was hidden under the table. It was the book yes, that I said right. to you. Was, and yeah. um, I was like, that was really interesting to me because like, we got lots of feedback from people who said, particularly people who were the very sensitive conscience people or people with um, anxiety or depression. We got lots of feedback saying, thank you for acknowledging I was in the room. That's the first time I've ever felt like someone has said, wow. you're okay. You don't need to, like, you know, you don't need to yeah. do this to be okay. And then ironically, I th it, it made it a very popular book because I think there were women who thought, <laughs> actually, I'm doing okay. Like, I feel, I feel pretty confident in Jesus. I'd like to think about, you know, my, the yeah. items of my heart and, you know, and sin and stuff like yeah. that. So it was a really interesting example where I, I was pretty nervous getting up to give that book review because I thought, the, what are my friends going to think and what, you know, are we going to sell any copies of this book? And I think I learned a lot from it by going, oh, people are actually hungry for that kind of frankness. And yeah. it didn't it didn't do destruction, it actually helped people and people yeah. Yeah, loved it. But enjoyed it, which is a complete surprise. I thought oh, yeah. I'm never gonna be asked to do a book review ever again. <laughs> I, I think what I can imagine is for somebody hearing what you said about it, it gives them an excuse to read this book and know that they might not be comfortable with it, yeah. but that's okay yeah. because that you've recognized that straight up. That's freeing in and of itself because you can read it and go, oh yeah, actually the fact that this particular illustration makes me feel uncomfortable yeah. or judged, it's because it's, it's just like damn illustration and she hasn't thought this yeah, through. Yeah. Yeah, and you yeah. don't need to throw the whole book out. That's how we want to read books anyway. Like like every book, every Christian book you read is not the Bible. And so even if it's yeah. your favourite author from your favourite publishing company, or you like, you, you still always read it going, you have to read it with discernment and read it with wisdom yeah. and read it comparing it to scripture. And so, yeah, like, and it means that, yeah, you don't have to start burning books because there's one, you know, chapter in it that you're like, oh, they really like, you know, yeah. that's not great. And you don't have to believe that everything's perfect about the books that you really do love. Yeah, yeah and, and that's the balance, I think, that is that really was that aha moment for me and the duh moment as well. <laughs> really, like it, it's, it's common sense, really. But, um, yeah, it was really oh, good. I, and clearly other people felt the same. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that was, it, was a, it was a surprise for me. It was kind of a bit of a, yeah. So what are you reading at the moment? Well, you actually caught me between books. I've been reading just for my own enjoyment and education. I've just finished a book called Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe, which has kind of been doing the rounds a little bit at the moment. My neighbour recommended it to me, so this is, I'm reading it. I was interested in it, but then I thought, I'll read it so I can talk about it with my neighbour. And I think my, my sister um, was interested in it too, so it gives me something to talk about with her. It's um, a guy who is basically just putting together some of the archaeological and um, and written evidence from early colonial diaries and stuff about just how developed and ingenious and expansive and deliberate Aboriginal agriculture and aquaculture were in the pre-colonial era. So um, that, was a, that was a really interesting read. It doesn't have a storyline, so it's not, it wasn't a, you know, ripping page turner or anything like that. <laughs> Next time, We've got a whole shelf of classics. I, I quite like classics, but there's lots in a bookshelf that I've never read. And so I'm going to give Portrait of a Lady by Henry James a go. I don't know how it, go, it was going to go, whether it's going to be great or not. So, um, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm lining up next. 
to read. Okay. So. The classics are great. So nineteenth century is just my favorite, like favorite era. Nineteenth century English. So, what would you recommend your top five must-read books for Christians are? I'm I'm kind of hesitant to recommend top five Christian reads because I just know in my own experience that they've been really fabulous books that I've tried to read at certain times of my life because I felt like I should, but it, it just hasn't been the right time or I haven't been interested enough. And they yeah. like, you know, waxed and waned on my bookshelf untouched until like a couple of years later where I've been like, ah, oh, I really need to read a book on this and rummaged it out and read it in a day and a half and thought, oh, that's brilliant. And, you know, would chew anyone's ear off. Yeah. My, the first one is uh, not so much a book as a Bible study. So it's full of promise, um, published by uh. the Bible Media. Yes. The Old yes, 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 yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah, so I did it in my second semester at uni and we did it. Can we keep having these aha moments? Yes, of course. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just write down the list and see if we've got all the same. Like, top, um, That'll books. be so funny. Yeah, so I did my first, my second semester of uni and I was just having my brain explode every week at Bible study because I'd grown up in a family that loved the Bible and in a church that thought the Bible was important, but I just had no concept whatsoever that it was one storyline that pointed to Jesus. And I was actually like a bit like, I've been a Christian for, you know, 18 years. Why has no one ever told me this ever before? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and so I reckon I've done it at least six times. Like, so I've done it three times in groups. And I reckon I've done it at least three times with individuals, like at uni or something like that. So yeah. full of promise. Um, I reckon if you haven't read something like Guidance and the Voice of God, or if you're a bit younger, Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. So Guidance and the Voice of God by Philip Jensen and Tony Payne. Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. I reckon just have, like just having a clear idea of how God guides, yeah. what to expect from him and not what to expect, what not to expect just lifted a load of anxiety off my shoulders. So as a conscientious Christian, I earnestly desired to do what God wanted and I just couldn't work out how he was going to communicate that to me. So one of those books, I think, like if you're a bit younger, yeah. you'll probably, Kevin DeYoung has a really punchy kind of style of writing, so he's very accessible. Yeah. If, you, if, you're not, if you're not a reader, that might be an easy one for you to read, but yeah, Guidance and the Voice of God. A lot of the illustrations are illustrations in both those books that are relevant to people in the stage of life where they're making lots of decisions about career and marriage yeah. and stuff. So you might yeah. read it. If you're reading it in your 40s or your 60s, you might be reading it thinking, oh, kind of dumb on all this stuff. But I think in general, very, very helpful. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other ones are kind of a little bit, a little bit random. I don't know if I'd state them as my favourites, but things. So there's a little book called Fearing God by David Mears. It's very, very short. It's like 60 pages. So it's called Fearing God, so you don't have to be afraid. Uh, it's very easy to read. And I just think it's a, that would be something I think every Christian is worth reading because I think we feel uncomfortable or we're confused about the idea of fearing God. But, but it actually has huge impact on how we live our life. And actually has it like and this idea of almost of fighting fear with fear, that actually when we fear God, it sets us free from lots of other fears or it, it helps us to grapple with those other fears and stuff like that. So I reckon that's just a great little book. I recommended last year at our mid-year camp, I did the bookstore for that and I said, this is one of the books I think everyone in the room should buy and read. And I had, a, I had one of those male students came back to me and said, I did that, I bought it and I read it and you're right, it's so good, everyone should buy that. <laughs> I reckon there's a book called The Plausibility Problem, The Church and Same-Sex Attraction by Ed Shaw. And it's a really helpful book because I, I just think at the moment, the current environment that we're living in, every Christian has to think about 
sexuality and gender and like actually it's quite complex theologically it's not easy to think about so pretty easy to read while being theologically thoughtful Ed Shaw himself is a same-sex attracted Christian man he's committed to living out Christian sexuality and he is just so lovely and so honest and so raw about stuff but basically the book is, it's, a, it's set up the chapters are a series of missteps that the church has kind of done culturally, which means that we don't make much sense when we talk to the world about sexual ethics and we don't make much sense to our brothers and sisters who are same-sex attracted when we talk to them and tell like about sexual ethics. So things like, um, you know, that we think, we assume heterosexuality is godliness. Mm, um, and equating mm. those together um, things like that suffering is to be avoided at all costs uh, things like assuming that family is mum dad and kids and so it just goes through that singleness is a terrible disaster before people so things that we unconsciously believe or communicate as a church that actually make it really difficult to live out a godly life in Jesus if you're same-sex attracted and we make it we actually make it harder for brothers and sisters rather than make it easier and so it's, it's actually a book not just about same-sex attraction. It's a book about lots of little cultural assumptions we have in church, bringing them to the light of scripture and actually changing how we think about lots of things. So it's just a really great book. And then the last one's a bit of a wild card. I read this recently and um, it's a little book on the Christian life by John Calvin. It's just a really short book. It's got a series of little chapters and it, I think it's a really good introduction. If you're not used to reading you know, some of the old famous church history kind of stuff. It's a really lovely translation and just, yeah, just reading it. And there's so many times that I read it, I was like, yeah, that's really true. That's what life is like. That's what the Christian life is like. So just really realistic about suffering and the difficulties of life, but really, really gentle and pastoral as well as mm. we went through. So that's a bit of a little wild card that I just read recently that I really liked. But um, yeah. yeah, John Calvin, a little book on the Christian life. Some of them I've read before. I, I don't know if you remember or know what the original title was for guidance on the voice of god back in the day oh, it used the, last, to be called, the final word yeah, yeah, the, yeah. La, the last word on guidance and the last remember, word on guidance that's right yeah. yeah i read it when it was that title and i remember looking at this title going well that's a bit arrogant yeah <laughs> like and they, in, in previous editions have you seen the previous editions they write a little introduction that says yeah, we, we called it the last word on guidance and we realised that that was probably a really dumb idea so then they changed it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, guidance and the voice of God is fabulous. It's, it's a staple yeah. on, our, on our bookshelf and a good yeah. one for you. And I reckon, as you say, it's good for young folk as well. I mean, my eldest is, has read it and um, mm. has found it particularly helpful. And, and, you know, like you, you know, my full of promise, um, experience kind of dovetailed with my guidance and the voice of God experience. Yeah, yeah. And all of that was so eye-opening to how the Bible fits together and how just, again, assurance, knowing God's in control and then the freedom he gives you. I, I remember the illustration was that being in the will of God does not mean that you're walking on a tightrope and one misstep means that you're yes. out of the will of yeah, God. Yeah, you're, in, you're into plan B. And it's yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, like that kind of earnestness, and like it, like it came out of a real desire to know God, but just not a clarity about actually how clearly God speaks in scripture and, and stuff. So yeah, you have, you know, uh, I think really sincere Christians are necessarily tied up in knots and are necessarily struggling with God because he doesn't seem to be communicating with them or he doesn't seem to be delivering on what they've been led to expect. And so you end up with this promise, this problem with God that actually is something I'm making about Christian culture, not God's making. And yes, yeah, so it's just, 
enormously freeing to go, oh, okay, God has communicated with me. And it's a little bit harder because it requires so much like thought and wisdom and it's a long-term project. It's not some, you know, miraculous um, message in the sky. So yeah, 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 totally. I love the freedom factor. Um, So what's keeping you standing firm and growing as a Christian now, would you say? I mean, I think it's nothing very remarkable and it, uh, it sounds like a cliche, but it's just the, just more and more conscious of being held up by the grace of God. The older I get, the more I realize, wow, I am not going to have it all together in this life. And especially I think with the, the cancer diagnosis hanging over me, I know that I've got less time to work it out. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, you yeah. know it's very unlikely I'm going to live to my 60s, 70s, 80s and have 20 more years to figure this out. And so the realization, yeah, I'm not going to get it all together is actually really good because it just means that I'm more aware that I never had it all together. And it was, it's God that provides all everything that I need. So what keeps me going at the moment is I've just been praying more and more each day that God would help me to know what was true, to be able to see him clearly and truly, to know myself clearly and truly, and then tell me to live in light of what I know is true. And uh, just being really conscious that, I'm just dependent on God for that revelation and that understanding, that growth that it all has to come from him because yeah, I can't like, like I learned back in second year uni, it doesn't come from trying to pull my socks up by myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, like, you know, that seems to work for a couple of weeks or months and then you just find yourself back on the same treadmill. So I think it's just an increasingly strong sense of dependence on God and my longing to see him clearly and by so if I say him clearly then I'll see myself and the world clearly and I'll know how to live yeah and then grace to do that really yeah yeah now this is a bit of a I haven't actually spoken to you about this before but Tori and I were actually talking about this morning um how it would be really awesome to get our guests to share their favorite passage or verse all right um, sure yeah yeah it's such a tough question because um, there's so many good parts. Like I think, I think yeah. probably in some ways I would always kind of say Romans chapter eight because it's yeah. just so much that makes so sense. But in terms of like just going a verse, I love Psalm 103 and Psalm 103 has been really important to me in times of real desperation and anxiety and, and feeling my weakness and, fe- and, and thinking, how is God even patient with me and putting up with me? Um, Psalm 103, uh, verse 11, uh, verse 13 to 14. So Psalm 103, verse 13 to 14. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Just that realisation that God knew from the very start that I'm just a frail little dust particle, um, that he's not standing by me going, oh, gosh, why don't you have it together by now? He's like a dad with a little toddler going, it's okay. I'm going to hold on to you. I'm here to look after you. I know you're weak. I know you're frail. He doesn't, he's not standing by like a scolding schoolmaster. He's yeah. standing by like a tender-hearted dad with a little toddler. Um, yeah. And that just changing my view of myself and how I was treating myself in my failures and my sin. And to actually go, no, this is actually how God relates to you was a profoundly healing um, and comforting thing. So Psalm 103, just like his favourite psalm, closely followed by Psalm 51. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Thanks for allowing me to spring that one on you. 
Um, so yeah, thanks so much for sharing all your story and for the vulnerability and the honesty. And I think that's something that will really resonate with people. Um, so yeah, thanks. Thank We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Lydia Project. We would love you to share this episode with others, whether that be by word of mouth, social media, or leaving a review on iTunes. You can find us on most platforms using the handle at TLPCWCW. Special thanks goes to our platform host, The Gospel Coalition Australia. Music is Wholesome 7 by Dave Depper, and voiceover is by me, Jennifer Mary.